welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and the National Crime Victim Bar Association. Now, last week, we were talking to Rich Anderson, who's one of our favorite attorneys out of Seattle, and he was telling us about the representation he undertook of a nine-year-old child who was sexually assaulted on a pier by a known pedophile. Now, you might have caught in that last episode, Rich mentioned that this guy sued this nine-year-old for defamation. Defamation is a very technical term, but we throw it around so much in the legal world. So I just want to ask Rich, what was defamation in this case? Can you explain it as a concept and explain to us how possibly a man could sue a nine-year-old child for defamation? Yeah, well, I, I, he basically said his allegation is that her her report of child molestation was entirely false and essentially it damaged his reputation. Um, what his damage reputation. did it do to his reputation? <laughs> well, see, that's the part. That's the part that initially was also kind of motivating because in my head I'm thinking, oh my God, what a fun trial! I get to stand up and say what you just said. I'm sorry, the reputation of a child rapist and murderer or whatever I get I mean I get to basically talk about every bad thing he's ever done and 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 demonstrate that I'm sorry what reputation of his was ruined um you know what are they going to do award my client or award him a dollar uh you know it's just it would have been a fun it just selfishly would have been a fun case to try um but you know that that was essentially it is like he she ruined my reputation in the community uh, which he'd only been in for a little while, having just been released from prison. But I don't know if he meant the fisherman or the, his, you know, nephew or who who he was upset that this little girl ruined his his life. But um, it, it's obviously a bogus claim. I mean, there's no there's no merit and there's no financial value to it from my perspective. But but I read the pleadings and his story in the news article, and and he is saying that look, there were all these people around. There were all these people watching. There's no way I did this, but you actually discovered some evidence. And you know what? This is when I start to go down the rabbit hole that I didn't need yeah. to go down. We're going to go down it, but I want to set it up correctly. Um, 
you didn't go to trials. So let's talk about the steps you've been taking to represent this client um, and what's been going on. Cause this sure. has taken a lot of your life. Yeah. A couple of years actually. Um, and the rabbit hole is fun. So if we have time, we should go back to the rabbit hole, let's but the, um, oh, we're going to. Okay. All right. But the, so, you know, I, the first thing I did was, is that, you know, I agreed to represent this woman pro bono. Um, I'm not taking her money for something stupid. And, and honestly, I figured, come on, this is going to be pretty easy to get rid of. So uh, long story short, the public defender that had been helping him ghostwrite his pleadings, essentially, uh, was removed from the case by his superiors, uh, because that's outside the purview of the type of stuff that the public defense is paid for in Washington. Uh, and he kind of refused, so they removed him. But what he did was, is he grabbed an older, uh, you know, a, a public, former public defender who was now in criminal, uh, private criminal defense practice and that he used to work with defending civil commitments and said, hey, buddy, will you represent this guy for me? Um, so he basically got one of his criminal defense buddies to represent him uh, pro bono. And so I went to the criminal defense attorney. I went to his office. I said, hey, this is a stupid case what are you doing? There's no money in it for your client. And uh, in addition, in about five minutes of legal research, I found a, a complete defense for my client with an immunity provision, uh, which is the anti-slap statute in Washington. Uh, here's a copy of it. Here's some case law on it. Why don't you read it and call me back in a week and tell me you're dismissing the case. We'll all, we'll all put our weapons down and walk away. Because at, at that point, that's all my client wanted. She just wanted it over. She didn't want it prolonged any further. She wasn't looking for money or you know, attorney's fees or anything like that. She just wanted out. Um, so I went and I asked, I you know, politely asked him uh, to, to talk to the client and drop the case. I get the proverbial pound sand a couple of weeks later. So I'm like, all right. We'll, we'll litigate it. And so I, I, you know, I did some very rudimentary uh, written discovery. Um, I made arrangements to depose the uh, Mr. Sanchez, the offender, um, at the lovely Special Commitment Center, which I am not kidding. Uh, you can, it's in the middle of Puget Sound on an island. You have to take a ferry that is controlled by the Department of Corrections. Then you got to ride a 20 minute bus ride into the middle of nowhere. And I swear to God, had I been, had that bus been jumped and I'd been killed that day, no one would have found my body yet. I mean, it's literally in the middle of the, mo in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I deposed him, you know, not super long, but just to sort of, uh, all right, poke fun, but also, you know, delve into some of the issues like his damages and, and what his version of events was. Cause I knew he, I figured he would lie and he would be able to keep his story straight. But really what I was doing is I was trying to set up a summary judgment motion uh, to get it dismissed on the immunity claim. So we filed summary judgment, court granted it. Um, and in Washington, under our anti-slap statute, uh, there are some provisions where uh, you can get attorney's fees and costs and a statutory penalty of $10,000 if somebody brings a slap case and it gets dismissed as a result of this immunity provision. And the immunity provision in Washington, is it, it's pretty uncomplicated. It's if you um, make a report 
to a government agency that is reasonably within that government agency's purview, that person has complete immunity uh, from what they tell them. It's obviously designed to encourage people to report things to law enforcement or the SEC or you know whatever the state equivalent is or you know various government uh, agencies. So um, I mean, this is it squarely fits into that situation. You're reporting a potential crime of child molestation to the police department who is charged with investigating and responding to allegations of child. And um, she reported it timely. It wasn't right there days later. It was right there. I mean, the police came and he was still there and she was able to yep. identify him. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was immediate. Uh, they arrested him on the spot. Um, and it, it could not have been clearer from our perspective that this is exactly the kind of thing that the statute is designed to protect. Um, the defense made some arguments that because our nine-year-old told the chaperone and therefore told their mother and those two were the ones that called the police that somehow the immunity provision didn't apply they made a bunch of other arguments which because the nine-year-old would know to call the police directly. well that's just it they were essentially uh, implying that uh, in order to be protected you personally had to make the report now she didn't um she did speak directly to the officers twice. Then she repeated the allegations at the prosecutor's office uh, during a child forensic interview. So she did do that, but they're saying her initial report by reporting it to the mom or reporting it to the chaperone, that's not protected. And that of course caused the cascade of things that happened afterward. So, you know, a really tortured interpretation of the, the statute by the defense in my, or I'm sorry, by the offender. Um, but it, it got dismissed and we, you know. So you had because, a motion for summary judgment. Yeah, right. and, and we followed up with uh, a motion for cost fees and CR 11 sanctions against the attorney that was basically filing these bogus pleadings. Um, and I did that knowing full well, it was never gonna get paid, uh, but I wanted the judgment on there just in case. And more importantly, I thought that would have a chilling effect on this kind of behavior for other people in the future. And so, you know, mom was totally on board. She's like, yeah, we, this is stupid. This has been awful for our family. Let's set a precedent where other offenders don't want to do the same thing. Um, and, and, and then it, then it went off the rails. Uh, yeah, we're six years later and you're still well, litigating this. How, uh, how, my part, how did we get My part's here? only half that, but yeah, it's so, you know, we, we get the case dismissed at summary judgment. We get an order for, I don't know, $30,000, $40,000 in fees and costs. Um, the offender appeals. He found another, uh, the original private criminal defense attorney was sanctioned $4,000. Um, so my client did get that. Um, but he withdrew after that for what I think are obvious reasons. Somehow this guy found another private criminal defense attorney uh, to represent him on appeal. So he filed an appeal. Briefs were written. Um, we did oral, you know, we did the oral Zoom argument because uh, of COVID in front of uh, Division One of our Court of Appeals. They upheld the dismissal. Um, uh, saying actually one of the things that you mentioned that, that it's 
it's totally unreasonable to expect a nine-year-old to call the cops directly. This is a tortured interpretation of the statute, and that's not what it's designed for, among other reasons. Um, so they upheld the dismissal of the statute. Uh, I had some calls with the new private criminal defense attorney, and uh, I filed for fees and costs for the appeal uh, and said, knock it off. Um, you know, we'll walk away and leave it at that. They filed a petition for uh, review with the Washington State Supreme Court. So you're now waiting. More, more briefs, uh, more time passes. Uh, and then fortunately in January of this year, the Washington State Supreme Court um, uh, denied their petition for review. So, you know, it's over. Thank goodness. Great. No, no, it's not over. The, the original public defender that got kicked off the case, he's filing amicus briefs. They're filing objections to the, the, the fee petitions, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, I can't even tell you the hundreds of pages of briefing and paperwork that these guys have done, all in the name of saving, I guess, someone they believe that had been wrongly accused and convicted of not just the incident with my client, but as well as the original the murder conviction. Um, and it's just, it's never ending. I'm, I don't think it's over yet. I was going to ask, what are the next steps? Well, you know, that's a good question. Right now, uh, we're in the middle of the, you know, 30-day waiting period for the offender to object to the court commissioner's ruling upholding the fees and costs petition at the Supreme Court level. Um, then it'll go back to the uh, appeals court level for their imposition of fees and costs. And then it's just a question of, you know, what do we do to enforce a judgment uh, against anybody? And that's, honestly, that's one of the most frustrating things about this entire case is because the case is being brought by somebody who's, you know, sitting in a facility, confined in a facility with no real assets to speak of, as you can imagine, his wife divorced him after his conviction. I'm sure took whatever she could. Um, he's got no assets to pursue, but clearly someone is footing the financial bill for his attorneys. Because uh, I promise you, these attorneys are not doing it pro bono. Um, so somebody's, somebody's paying his legal bills, but I don't know who that person is. And you know, there's no real way to find out and there's no money to go after. So we're left in a situation of, do we, you know, try to enforce the judgment? Do we, I don't know, garnish wages, you know, of 10 cents a day at the special commitment? I mean, what do we do to not only get him to stop, but to get some sort of compensation or, you know, redress for this mom and this girl who's now, what, 14, 15? Um, for, because your for, client just wanted this to stop, right? Yeah. At right. some point, she didn't even want anything. She just wanted it to stop. No, I mean, obviously they moved to dismiss. I mean, like I said, they got a really, it wasn't a big settlement with, with BBS, you know, big brothers, big sisters. Um, and uh, frankly, I'm surprised they got anything at all, but no, they just wanted it over. I mean, she's nine when it happens. She's 12 when the lawsuit sort of starts and, you know, is tried to be dismissed. She's 14, 15 now. She doesn't want any part of this. And, and thankfully, uh, 
the appeals process has had almost no involvement with the client directly. And I, you know, I've, I've tried very carefully to, you know, limit to a certain extent, my contact with the mom, uh, because every, every time I told her we won, it's over. I was wrong. So, you know, it's just like picking a scab and opening this old wound, but it should be over now. Um, now just for listeners who have been paying close attention, um, this could be a, he said, she said, it certainly was when it was presented to court. Um, there are folks all around. I've read his allegations that he was helping her lay down on her jacket to wash her hands and pick the fish up. It becomes very much a, he said, she said, except for the aforementioned rabbit hole (laughs) where you actually learn some things about this perpetrator that make it not, he said, she said. Yeah. Um, so for those of you that are bored and you've heard enough of the story, it's time to tune out. So, but, uh, this part is kind of interesting, but, um, uh, you know, he's still in, he's still in custody awaiting trial in the special commit or in the civil commitment proceeding. Um, some of the questions I asked him during the deposition, I was trying to explore what kind of assets he had, um, and through our investigation, we discovered that he had a, um, you know, like a storage unit, you know, like it, I, I forget the name of them, but you know, like a the personal ones you pay, storage area. Yeah. yeah. The ones you, you know, you rent monthly or whatever. Yep. Um, and I could tell from his, uh, I made some public disclosure books for his financial records at the facility. And I could tell he's making a monthly payment for rent on this storage facility. Uh, Interestingly enough, one of the other people that was fishing on the dock of the day of the original incident was this man's, uh, was I think it was a nephew, some sort of relative, who at the time, of course, told the cops, yeah, that this never happened. Well, he apparently um, has changed his story about his uncle or relative's innocence search warrant was served on the, the storage unit. And I'm not going to go into detail because everything is still pending, but uh, there was a cell phone in there that presumably has photographs of my client taken on the day of the incident. Um, and some, and I think they would probably be described as up the skirt type photographs uh, that don't have her face or don't depict her specifically, but you can look at the clothing, match the bathing suit and the color. And, you know, so you basically, to me, if, if the story could get any worse, um, you know, his protestations of his innocence and being railroaded and, you know, whatever other ways he expressed it, there's just complete bunk. And when I found that out, I, I told his, I told his defense attorney, I was like, Hey, look, here's this evidence call uh, the authorities who are investigating it, call the people representing him uh, on behalf of the, you know, the prosecutors now bringing this charge or potentially bringing this charge, you know, check my math um, and drop it and let's go away. Nope. They still proceeded with the appeal to the Supreme Court, you know, didn't change anything. Guy's going to keep doing it. And th- again, another frustrating aspect of 
you know, this particular case, because, you know, the truth is wholly irrelevant, doesn't even begin to describe. Now, I'm glad we got to the rabbit hole because. Yeah, you want the blue pill or the red pill? Right. Um, but, but look, we never like to leave these podcasts completely frustrating. You could say this case has been nothing but, um, and, and just a lesson in not suing. Um, but there's a lot of good that came out of it. And there's actually good that came out of your investigations. So your client now actually found justice within the just within the criminal justice system, but also because of your investigation, it's likely that this man's going to face even more time and he is in prison. Well, he's in a correction. He's in a, they're, they're trying to negotiate his transfer from this civil commitment facility to a more federally run facility. But so he won't be hurting more children for a very long time. Right. And, and maybe that's the solace. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to predict, but I, I am, I am gratified that in, in some ways justice was served in the sense that he didn't get to bring this, he didn't force this little girl to go to trial um, mm-hmm. and talk about things that had happened years and years and years ago. Um, and, you know, for the most part, she's been kept out of it. Uh, the right decision in the end was made. I think, I, you know, I take some satisfaction in that. Uh, and you're right to a certain extent. Um, his struggle against what he claimed was this, you know, total injustice just had people continue to work. And and I'm I'm not just, I'm not talking about us necessarily, but, you know, law enforcement and the prosecutors in the civil commitment proceeding and, you know, nobody gave up and it turns out, you know, the truth ultimately came to light and, you know, I'm sure he'll still fight that, but who knows, that's not, that's not our issue anymore. But yeah, if, if it, if it, in the end stopped uh, or maintained him in custody and stopped him from doing this to anybody else. I think someday as she grows up and looks back, maybe, maybe Kay will, will, will sort of uh, um, get some satisfaction and some healing from the fact that she stood up to a guy and, you know, the system in some ways really worked uh, to maintain him where he should be, which is away from other people and away from children in particular. Um, Rich, that's about all the time we have for today, but I just want to give you another minute to, to talk about anything that I didn't bring up or to give our listeners some, some last minute words of wisdom or, or advice or thoughts. Um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, uh, and I appreciate you asking it. I guess I would sort of say two things, one of which we've kind of gone over, so I won't belabor it, but, you know, as a plaintiff's attorney, uh, it's great, uh, especially with the, the bar association that we have here, um, that people are so invested in fighting for victims. And I think that's fantastic. Um, be careful about the tactics and the strategies that you use in order to do it, because it, it may not always turn out the way you want. So the, the cautionary tale is, is have good reasons for suing an offender or not suing an offender or how it's gonna present in the courtroom. Think about those things before making decisions that can impact your clients. I guess that's the first thing. And, and, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, I, I have to thank and appreciate my colleagues at the firm, uh, 
for allowing me to spend some of my time, you know, doing a pro bono case that that will never see any money for the firm or really even the clients. Um, but that was righteous work in my opinion and, and really needed to be done to help a family out of a jam and, and in particular, a, a, a young victim of sexual abuse out of a situation that was just so absurd. Uh, one could almost not even imagine it happening. And so, um, you know, when, when people come into you with some crazy stories uh, and they're in desperate need of help, uh, do set some of your time aside for, for pro bono and, and sort of, you know, benefit work like this. Uh, it was crazy. It was frustrating, but there were some really fascinating pleadings and arguments and really nutty stuff presented by some of the lawyers in the case. And so it, at the same time, it was kind of fun too. And I'm, I, I'm glad uh, that I did it and was able in small, some small measure to maybe help this family through a difficult time. Fantastic. Well, Rich, thanks so much for joining us today and just for taking on this case and for the work you do every day. For our listeners, again, Rich is out of Seattle, Washington at the firm of Schrader, Goldmark, and Bender. And as always, we are going to put his contact information and his website in the show notes. So make sure to check that out. Thank you for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice and please join us next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Wofford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.